uh, yesterday. I probably have never spent as much time studying a particular passage I was going to preach on on Sunday uh, as I did this week. Before I do that, I want to, I meant to mention this before, there's tabletop magazines out in the Narthax. This is the official magazine, the monthly magazine of Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's ministry. And uh, it's a really good, has really good stuff in it. So they're out there for your taking. So uh, if, you, if you take one, I'm going to ask that you take it and read it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but they're there for your taking. We are going to be jumping into Revelation uh, chapter 4. So we've, we finished up the letters last week. And just kind of a synopsis of that, uh, or a few things I want to bring to our attention before we go much further. Uh, one of those is really, in my understanding, and this is becoming a growing kind of understanding, I think, as far as understanding the book of Revelation. And that is to, to picture it as not one vision that just goes <coughs> on and on and on, but actually a series of seven visions that cover basically the same time frame. And that is between Christ's ascension back into heaven and his second coming and the judgment that takes place at that time. So basically the same subject that is, is, is introduced and, and, and addressed in, in, in sometimes very different manners. Uh, but again, that's basically the pattern you see uh, in the book, and when you see it, it really does help you understand, uh, I think, a lot more about it than you probably would. Uh, and, and I know this. I know that most people just see it from the beginning and the end to the end is just this gradually revealing of all these different kinds of things that are going to take place. Well, what I'm saying here is it does that, but it talks about things that are, and it also talks about things that will be, Okay. But it follows kind of a pattern. So what we've done is we've wrapped up the first vision in chapter 3. And we're moving on to the second one, which is very often called the vision of the seven seals. You've probably heard about it. It's one of probably the most known parts of Revelation uh, for most people. And at the same time, I want you to remember this, and that is that it's all connected. In other words, I don't want you to put things in this category that all the stuff in the first one are just they're just confined to that and so on. There's a, a lot of overlapping, like we said, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, but it all works together to teach us a lot of different things. And one of the primary things I hope you get from this Uh, this sermon today and from this passage today is this. Uh, Is we've looked at those letters and we've seen that they were addressed to those seven churches and we need to understand that those seven churches are just representatives of the church in general. In other words, those things, many of those things that that were addressed to those churches just could just as easily or just as readily be applied to Springs Presbyterian Church. We saw that, it, that these, were, these were churches that were persecuted and they were struggling for different reasons. They were not popular in their communities and, 
Uh, and sometimes they suffered even to the point of death. There are at least two people that we knew that, that, that are mentioned specifically that, that gave their lives because of their Christian faith uh, in these different cities. Churches struggle. It's part of being a church is struggling. I don't know of a single church that doesn't struggle at times about different things and for different reasons. But what you'll find in the, the first vision is there's really an emphasis at the focal point is what's going on here in the world. And there's a, real, there's a very good assessment of the struggles and strife that churches go through. And at the same time, the same blessings. We need to understand that there are blessings that Jesus gives in those letters too. But John's perspective is changed now. Rather than looking at things that are going on in these visions, going on in the world, the, 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 the focus, focal point, the, the, the beginning of this, this next vision, this chapter, is upon heaven. And let me just tell you, I'm going to say from the very beginning here, I'll tell you what I want you to get out of this and what the scriptures want us to get out of that. And that is this, is in the world they're struggling and strife and all of that as believers, we are going to go through it. As a church, we're going to go through it. But at the same time, there is a sovereign God in heaven who is overseeing absolutely everything. So no matter how badly things may look in this world to you and I, it's all part of God's plan. And he's, it's all about he's in control. Even though it may not look like it to you and I at a particular moment in time. God never loses control. He never gives control up. He is the center of everything. So let's read the first verses of chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you What must take place after these things? Immediately I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne there were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceeded flashings of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal in the center and around the throne for living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature uh, had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like uh, a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, 
to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and they were created. See the shift in focus? The focus is squarely upon God. The God who is in heaven, the God that is in control. Now, uh, we've talked about doors a number of times already in the previous chapters. The, the, the door analogy was used two different times in two different ways in those letters. We see here a door to heaven that's open. And John is beckoned to come up. Now, I just want to say some things that may help us understand the overall jest of things. Number one, we understand that God is an omnipresent God. In other words, that God is present everywhere all the time. There is no place, period, in any realm, in any sense of existence, where God is not. He is an omnipresent being. He is the creator God. And everything that exists apart from him is part of his creation. We know that God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. God the Holy Spirit is spirit. God the Son in his divine nature is spirit. I think some people believe this. If we got on a rocket ship and we started heading out into outer space that... Uh, you know, if we went further and further and further, that eventually we would reach heaven. Okay? That is not what we're talking about here at all, guys. I, heard, I actually heard an evangelist uh, a number of years ago in a sermon. He identified black holes as being heaven. That's where heaven is in the black holes. And he said it matter-of-factly. People that that have those kinds of ideas don't understand the reality of things. That God is spirit and God exists in the spiritual realm. There's a sense in which uh, the spiritual realm surrounds us. It's, It's a realm of existence that you and I in our present condition cannot sense. We cannot perceive it. We can't see it. We can't smell it. We can't hear it. But that does not mean it's not here. That God is present here. There's a very good chance that there are angels sitting here listening to what we're talking about and joining us in our worship service. There's a realm that exists and we're immersed in it that we have no sense of it through our sensory perception. There's a sense in which As a believer, God is beckoning every one of us to come up. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about is the yearning of your soul. There are things in this world that bind us to this world, loved ones in particular, people that we love, people that we're close to, people we depend on, people that are dependent upon us. 
But there's a sense in which a believer understands this, that this world as it is is no longer our home. Our home is with God. Our home is with Christ. But we understand as long as we're bound to our bodies in this world, we are in this world. At the time of our death, our spirit, our spiritual existence, because see, we also have a spiritual existence, not just a physical one, is lifted up to be with the Lord. The door is standing open into heaven. And John is about to see things that are so phenomenal, so mind-blowing, that he has an extremely difficult time even explaining and describing what he sees. It is nothing like anything he has ever pictured or ever seen in his whole lifetime. It is majesty beyond belief. It is glory beyond brilliance. Can you imagine how encouraging his message is going to be to those seven churches that are struggling in the world? Because of what God reveals to him now. Now, he's not the first time that that God has chosen to reveal himself in magnificent ways to people. You think about Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses had visions of God. You think about Isaiah chapter 6. And and if if you want a a parallel passage in all of Scripture uh, to compare with what we're looking at here, it's probably the very best one. And this is where Isaiah sees a vision of God in the temple. And there's overlapping here of some of the things that he actually sees. Now, is that the temple that was in Jerusalem? Probably not. He's probably having a vision very similar to the one that John is having now. A very important passages in our understanding of these things come from the prophet Ezekiel. In the first chapter, there's a lot of overlapping between that and what we find in chapter 4 of Revelation. So when you're studying this passage, I would encourage you to consider, this is one of those things, guys, that, that, that God gives us all these pictures of virtually kind of the same things, but there are always different aspects that each one brings to light that we would not have apart from it. In other words, if we really want to understand what is going on in here in heaven right now, it probably would behoove us to also read Isaiah chapter 6 and also to read Ezekiel chapter 1 and also to read Exodus with Moses on Mount Sinai. Notice here that the voice is sound, and this, that he hears it sounds like a trumpet. And we've heard that before in, in chapter 1, verse 10. He heard this trumpet-like voice, but it was a familiar voice, of the, a voice he had heard many, many times, but in some ways it was very different than it was before. 
Before it was the earthly voice of Jesus, now it is a resurrected and ascended voice of Jesus. And it sounds like a trumpet blast. The same one is speaking to him. And this is one of the reasons why the conclusion is now we're starting another vision. Because immediately here Jesus appears and he is speaking. He is sh- and remember that he is showing these things to the Apostle John. John's actually seeing them. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit. Now, uh, this is not the first time he said that in, in chapter 1, verse 10. When he was on the island of Patmos, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. When he began to have these visions. We talked about it when we studied that. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now, we know what thrones are, right? We know that they are the places where kings and queens and very important royalty and folks like that sit. This, on the other hand, is the throne of God, of God himself. Some people would say it's the center of the universe. I don't think it's the center of the universe at all. I think it's the center of existence, period. That everything that is, whether you're talking about the physical universe or you're talking about anything else. And this is not probably the very center. In other words, this is the, you, know, you know, heaven is probably not located at the very center of the universe as you and I know it to be. It's probably nothing like that at all. It's the center of all things because of its importance and its authority. It's not a positional center. It is the authoritative center. It's the power center. It's where there is really a very special presence of that omnipresent God. Where he is demonstrated in all of his power and all of his glory to those who are able to see it and to look upon it. Which one of these days, if you are a believer, you will do. When we read this, we should think about Psalm 110. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Today we're going to see God the Father here. We're going to see God the Holy Spirit here. Next week for certain, we're going to see Jesus Christ here too. Now, there is a handout in your book or in your bulletin. looks like this. Uh, I can't take credit for this diagram. This is a diagram that was developed by a guy named William Hendrickson who did one of the foremost commentaries on the book of Revelation a number of years ago. I've modified his a little bit because I don't agree with some of the conclusions he went to. But this just might help you a little bit as we go through here and we consider this description that he gives of this throne of God and everything that surrounds it. Okay. 
So Father, God the Father, that's what the F is, sitting on the throne. Now, there's not a lot of description given to him. The description that we get really doesn't tell us a whole lot about him. Okay. Uh, But we know that he's at the center of all of it, the focal point. Uh, And he's surrounded by particular things. Uh, The Jasper and the Sardius, it should be S-A-R-D-I-U-S, not I-S. and there's a green halo, or subscribed to being a rainbow, uh, and et cetera. And the glassy sea, and then the, the little rectangles are the 24 thrones for the, uh, the elders that are sitting there who fall down and worship him uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and in the sixth circle is the myriads of angels, the heavenly hosts that are surrounding there. And then seven is... All creatures in the universe, you need to understand something, guys. This is not a picture of the throne room of God. This is the picture of everything. It just happens to be that the throne is at the very center of everything. That authoritative throne of Almighty God who determines all things. So anyway, this might help you a little bit as we're going through here. And I just want to say this to you before we go any further, and that is this, is John is trying to describe that which is indescribable. The only thing we have recorded here is kind of his impressions of things, which probably fall super-duper well short of what reality is. He's just trying to say what he sees. He sees one sitting on the throne. And he is sitting was like a jasper stone. So is John telling us that God is nothing but a rock? Maybe, maybe he's saying there's just, it's just a statue sitting on a throne. Looks like he's made out of stone. Would that make a whole lot of sense to you? Well, we need to understand that, uh, that even though it's been a long time since this was first written down, and in the, in the names of some things have changed. In other words, we don't really know what Sardius is. We don't know exactly what they mean by jasper. The, the meaning of these things has changed somewhat over the years, more than, more than likely. Now, what we're talking about is stones of brilliance, stones of a color. Both of those were supposedly reddish in color. <clears throat> but when you think about the glory of God, some things might come to mind, and one of those is brilliant light. Burning fire, which is reddish. And I can't explain a lot of these things to you. And I don't think I'm intended to. What I want you to get from it is this. It's just, it's, 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 it's indescribable. It's absolutely like nothing else. There's nothing else like it in all of existence. There never has been, there never will be. There are not words that come close. Verse 3 says that there was a rainbow around the throne. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean a rainbow. It could be a halo. And really, the way I seem it is, I, I think it probably is something like this, kind of from 
you know, the original words that are used there, that it's really more like the throne is in the middle and then, then there's this almost this covering of this green, because it's emerald, canopy thing that is over the throne. Now, does that surprise you that God loves green, that it's his favorite color maybe? Look around here, there's a lot of green in the room, right? I'd like to be able to tell you it's because it's God's favorite color. It's actually my favorite color. And that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of this stuff is green here. But, but we think of green, and we think, you know, today green would be symbolic of nature and, you know, life and, you know, things like that. Uh, but it also, in ancient days, was a, the color of, one of the colors of authority and power and royalty and ruling. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders. Now, the general consensus is this. You could probably figure this one out without a whole lot of Bible help. Most people have concluded that the 12 of those represent the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, and the other 12 represent the 12 disciples. That makes a lot of sense. And we have no reason to believe that's not true. Uh, but, again, that's a possibility. It's a very strong possibility. But what we do know is this, is these guys are called elders, and these guys are sitting on thrones. They are leaders. They are leaders of those who lie outside of their circle. There's a sense in which they are representative of all the people. In other words, there's a sense in which those 24 elders that are there now they are there representing every believer, and that would include you and me. There's a symbolism that's in all of it. They have crowns on their heads, which means this is that they have some sense of being, they're ruling. They're rulers. Jesus at one time told the 12 disciples that you will Judge the 12 tribes of Israel. It's another reason why we would believe that at least 12 of these have to do with those, and certainly not Judas. Matthias would be sitting on where Judas would have been. And we know that all these guys are dead. They passed away, that their spirits have gone to be with Jesus. And they're still playing a role. There are two things we need to get out of this picture. And one of those is, is, again, that God is at the center. But another thing we need to get out of it is this. Is every being that we're going to talk about in all of this is doing one thing. And that one thing is worshiping the one who's sitting on the throne. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We talked about this. The seven spirits of God appear back in chapter 1, verse 4. 
And we talked about how the number seven represents perfection, completeness, and fullness in the Bible. And so we've concluded that more than likely that what is being spoken about here is the fullness, completeness of the Holy Spirit. Which is what we'd expect to find, right? We'd expect to find God the Father here. We'd expect to find God the Holy Spirit here. And we would also expect to find God the Son here too. He's going to appear. He's not quite there yet, but he will be here soon. And remember, the lampstand in the tabernacle, the temple, had seven lights on it, representing the same thing. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. We'll get to the creatures in a minute. Let's just talk about the sea of glass. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, the scriptures tell us that he saw a vision of God and God was standing on this brilliant crystal. Sounds like a sea of glass. Well, what is its function? Well, we don't know for certain. You know, there's a sense in which maybe it represents as well the lavier, which was sometimes called the sea, the basin that was in the tabernacle in the temple where they put the water for cleansing. Probably a s- sense of the, of the absolute purity, a cleanness. There's no pollution or anything like that at all of this area because this is where God is. Holy God, pure God. I would say maybe it does another thing that, and that is it basically separates the throne itself from everything that is around the throne. In other words, everything is at a distance. The thrones are not right up to the throne of God. There's a distance between them. And that's where the sea of glass is. It's a sense it's a barrier that presents, prevents certain people, certain beings from coming up to the throne of God. Now, we read about these four creatures, and this is one of the reasons why, and you know, Isaiah saw seraphim, angels that were ministering to God as he sat on his throne in the vision in the temple. Ezekiel, in his number of visions of the glory of God, he sees these strange creatures. Now, let me just tell you, as you read the descriptions, they're not identical to one another, but there's a whole lot of overlapping. And one of the things that's very common in Ezekiel, and you find emphasized here, is these creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. If you look at the diagram here, that's what those little four little squares represented, these seraphim or cherubim, whatever they may be called. It's obvious what their function is. Their, their, Their function is to serve God. To be there at his beck and call. They see ahead, they see behind, they see in every direction. 
There is nothing hidden from them. They worship him unceasingly. Now, some people may think this. Well, God, you know, he just has this big ego. He's prideful and all that kind of stuff. He just wants everything and everybody to worship him. So he's just created a bunch of worshipers because he likes to be worshipped. That might make some sense to some folks. But I would tell you, That these four creatures worship God unceasingly because they know he is worthy of that. That that is what he is due. They're not doing it begrudgingly or, or anything like that. They're doing it with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength. They love him. They adore him. They worship him because they see him and they know him in a way that you and I don't yet. They see him in his perfections. They hear him in his perfections. They experience him in his perfections. They know of his glory. They know of his truth. They know of his power. They know of his might. They know that he created them. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying Eagle, a lot of overlapping here with Ezekiel chapter 1, guys and gals. When you think of lions, what do you think of? Has anyone ever seen a, like an African lion? Walter and I have in real life. Almost up close and personal. We've actually stood on ground with a mount, with an African lion about a hundred feet away from us. The reason we were able to do that is because there was a guy standing behind us with a submachine gun. And let me tell you, that lion didn't like us being there. And there was one male, and there was two females, or I think, or something like that, and uh, and he was angry. I mean, he was doing the roar like you see when the MGM thing comes on. So what do you think about when you think about African lions, Walter? It's awesome to see things like that on TV. It's really awesome to see things like that in reality, to be there experiencing it. We didn't stay. And let me, we got out of our vehicle. We were on our feet. We stood very close to the door, just in case. 
but it's one of the most awesome things I've ever experienced in my lifetime. How many people do you know can say they've experienced that particular thing? I mean, we've all seen lions in the zoos and in the circuses and stuff like that, but, you know, right there in nature, in its own environment, and he didn't want you there. Very often, lions are considered to be the noblest. Think about the Lion King, that theme, the Lion King movie, the Disney. The second creature, like a calf. Now, what it comes to mind there? Well, now it probably is better interpreted as oxen or ox. And when we think of oxen, we think of strength, of brute strength, of power. Of might. Then you have a man there. He seems kind of out of place with all these others. But notice he's right there in the midst of these other creatures. Face of a man. Who seemingly is the wisest and most knowledgeable of all the creatures. Sometimes you wonder about that. And the fourth, like a flying eagle. I never realized it, but, uh, you know, we've seen some bald eagles around here, actually. In more recent years, for a long time, you would never see bald eagles around here. But we've seen one in our neighborhood a couple of times over the years. If you go to Alaska, you go to, to go to Washington, where Mount uh, uh, at uh, Nia Bay, where Amanti's been for so many years. You almost think that eagles are the most abundant bird there is. There, it's amazing how fast they are. So maybe this this face here has something to do with swiftness. It almost sounds like a sci-fi movie, doesn't it? Sounds very much like a sci-fi movie. Have you ever seen a beings like this? Have you ever seen beings that looked anything like this? We have more to say about them, but we'll wait and do that next week. So what are we going to get out of today? Two things. God is the center of everything. Number two, God is in control of everything. Amen. Well, and let me just say this. Take that and apply it. What's the message for us today? And that is this. Is my life may look terrible right now. This is bad is going on. That bad is going on. I can't understand why God lets this happen. So on and so on and so on and so on and so on. What is the message you need to hear is this, is that despite your circumstances, there is a God in heaven who is in absolute control of those circumstances. So what you need to do is not lean on your own understanding, not lean on your own abilities, but lean upon him. Because he will take care of you. He does it every time.